Do be seated. So one of the questions that we get asked a lot on the staff team is, how can we be certain when we're making decisions that we're not just getting them horribly wrong? How can we know what God wants? And in, uh, in Lent, for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at this subject of Christian decision-making and these turning points in life, big or small, and uh, how we can navigate life God's ways. Now, if you're looking at the cover of the bulletin and you see the spelling of that word, ways, uh, you might be wondering about that. And if so, you'll have to come back in week three for the explanation. (laughs) Wait and see. Uh, You might also be wondering about the the image on the bulletin cover. You know how we always try and capture the essence of a series and a title, a subtitle, and a graphic. Uh, What on earth is it that we're looking at right now on the cover of the bulletin? Uh, Maybe you think it looks like something from the the London Underground or something like that. And you're wondering, uh, the Holy Spirit told me you were wondering. All right, Courtney told me you were wondering. It's a similar thing. Uh, What is it? I tell you, this is a sign. It's a street sign from uh, a town in England called Swindon. It's, uh, Swindon is the Youngstown of the United Kingdom, minus the glamour, if you could picture such a thing. And this here that you're looking at is a sign for something called the Magic Roundabout. That's uh, what we're looking at. If you thought that roundabouts were a bad thing, there's three or four in Pittsburgh, and maybe you've been around one of them and found them to be lethal. This one in Swindon is like something out of Greek mythology. It's just one giant monster roundabout comprised of five different mini ones, and that means technically, so long as you obey the rules of each mini roundabout, it is possible to go around the big one in either direction at the same time. There are tales of people using the magic roundabout and never being seen again. (laughs) It's a very dangerous thing indeed. Tempers flare on the magic roundabout. One man uh, lost his temper with his wife on the magic roundabout at Christmas and uh, in a fit of rage, ripped out her false teeth from her mouth and threw them onto the magic roundabout. And a policeman made him go and get them back and give them back and apologize. Tempers flare. It's a wild place. Google it. Have a look at the aerial view in your own time at the magic roundabout. It is crazy land. And as you look at those views on Google, or maybe you just look at the the graphical representation of it from the street sign, maybe you look at this. Maybe you listen to my words, and maybe this seems like a metaphor for your life. There are so many different directions to go. There are so many decision points or turning points in life, so many different things that we might choose to do. And and so with all of these different turning points and ways to go, how do we find God's ways? How do we navigate life? These huge decisions about college and marriage and where we live and what job we do, these, these little decisions about should I have that drink, should I eat that cake, should I go for that run? Um, no, no, yeah. Like those really difficult decisions. How do we make godly decisions? If you have your Bible, which you do because you've got loads of them and a phone, let's open it. Second Timothy. We're going to find the first of five very simple answers to these complicated questions this week. And the first simple answer 
spoke number one in the magic roundabout is commanding scripture. The primary way that God speaks to us today is through his written word. Scripture, sacred writings, the Bible. Every single decision that we make can and indeed should come back to this, to the word of God. If something is commanded in the word of God, do it. If something is forbidden in the word of God, don't do it. If uh, something is not expressly discussed in the word of God, you can still ask whether the decision you're about to make is generally consonant with scripture or dissonant with the thrust of scripture. Is it addressed directly or indirectly in the word? Because we know this. God will never call you to do something that is contrary to his written word. And his written word will never change. The last paragraph of the whole Bible, Revelation 22, says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. We are not God's editors. We don't get to go through this and and say, well, he got that wrong, and I'm going to ignore this bit, and I'm going to amplify this bit and tweak this part. We don't get to do that. St. Augustine, this is like 1,600 years ago, Sounds so contemporary. St. Augustine once said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. And 2 Timothy talks about what it looks like when you believe yourself. Let's do some context work. Jump back a little bit to the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3, the passage before our passage today. This is what it looks like when we go our own way. This is what it looks like when we close the word and we make up our own ways instead and we just follow ourselves. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17 that the heart, the human heart, is deceitful. And this means that without direction, without godly direction from the word, if we just follow what's inside of our own hearts and go our own way, the chances of chancing on the right way without the word are practically nil, practically zero. Verse 5 just continues. It says, avoid such people. For among them, verse 6, are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now, some context here. What's he talking about? Why is he suddenly on about women? Uh, Why is he suddenly speaking like this? Well, it's not sudden. It's a theme that's woven through the whole of the letter. And uh, in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, 
he describes the vital role that women had in instructing other people about how to think Christianly. Timothy, it turns out, had learned a lot of the detail and the structure of his faith from his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. That's chapter 1, verse 5. And I think that Satan realized, Satan saw that quite simply, if he could mislead the mothers who had this teaching responsibility, if he could mislead the mums, the mums could misdirect the children. Because like all people with sinful hearts, if you're given a little bit of misdirection, you're primed and ready to take it. I think he knew if he could mess with the mothers and the grandmothers and the teachers, then he could mess with the church. Just imagine if Timothy's mother, instead of teaching him to open the word and to love the word, had said instead, just be your own man. Just grow up and go your own way. If it seems right to you, then then do it. If it feels good, then it must be good. Because God is good and you're good. And if it feels good, then it must be good and God must want you to do it. Imagine if she'd put him on the spiritual magic roundabout. Whoop, 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 whoop. You know, it seems go this way, go that way. Feel, listen to your heart. It's a Roxette song. Listen to your heart. It's a great song. <laughs> is it? Is it? My version isn't so good, is it? Imagine if she'd just said, you know, don't read the Bible. Just play some Roxette. Get your directions, maybe. Not from the word, but from your social media account. What are they saying on you know, social media right now? They're probably right. Just, just follow them. In one single generation, whoop, 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 the whole church would have been lost somewhere in Swindon on the spiritual magic roundabout. Youngstown without the glamour. It would have been a complete disaster. But they didn't. I'm sorry. I know you're from Ohio. I'm awfully sorry. Is, is it Ohio? <laughs> Is it Ohio, Youngstown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is not. But just for the record, those listening online that are not picking it up on the mic, the man from Ohio says it is a dump. So there we go. This is not my prejudice. We know they got it right. We know that they didn't just go, ah, make it up your own way, because verse 15 says so. Verse 15 commends these women, says, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The first thing they did, these teachers, was to teach Timothy how to navigate all of these turning points in life by finding God's ways. They taught him to be in the Word. They taught him to read the Word and know the Word and love the Word, to be well acquainted with the Word. There is no single better thing that they could have done for him. I want to say to you, church, if you get one thing right this Lent, get into the Word. If you're like, well, is that all? If you want a stretch target, if you want a second thing to do, if you get two things right this Lent, get someone else into the Word with you. The word is able, verse 15, to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. There is literally no point in teaching your child anything else at all if you have not taught them the word. You could raise a child to be proficient in a hundred different skills. But if they're not in the word, likely they won't take any of those skills with them. 
the only thing of true eternal consequence is our salvation. Note the word doesn't save you. Look closely. Jesus saves you through faith by grace. It is his atoning death for you on the cross that saves you. It's not your knowledge of the word that gets you saved. It's not like we could memorize this thing and know it backwards and then suddenly God would have to let us in. That would be the opposite of grace. That would be yet more rules and works. But the lively word of God is the thing we need to grow in faith. It is the thing that we use to help us navigate the turning points of life. Now, of course, there are ways to use the Bible well. And there are ways to misuse the Bible as well. In uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, Paul calls Timothy to be a worker approved by God who appropriately handles the word of truth. Our friend Mark Powley on a Christian camping trip once was putting up his tent found, uh, you know, looking for something to hammer the tent pegs into the ground, and he started using his Bible to hammer the tent pegs in, and someone said, Mark, are you a worker approved by God appropriately handling the word of truth? (laughs) Not quite so sure God meant that. Uh, There are lots of ways to inappropriately handle the word of truth. I would suggest to you that just randomly flicking through it and chancing upon a verse and seeing what it says is, is not an optimal Bible reading strategy. Uh, it's probably no better for you than just, say, going onto a building site and randomly firing a nail gun around and seeing if you manage to build a house. You know, OSHA frowns on that kind of a thing. Uh, there's a story of a man, this old silly story, desperately direct, uh, you know, seeking direction for his life, one of those turning points, what am I going to do? And uh, opening up the Bible for some inspiration at random. And what came up? was Matthew 27, 5. Judas hanged himself. Not very encouraging, he thought. You know, not too helpful. So he thought, I'd better flick again. Go somewhere else. He turned to Luke 10, 37. You go and do likewise. <laughs> I don't think that's the way to do it. You know, I think maybe some context is helpful sometimes when we appropriately handle the word of truth. There's another thing that people do, of course, another inappropriate method, and that's just good old-fashioned making stuff up. Have you noticed that thing that people say? Well, the Bible says. Have you had one of those? If someone says, you know, the Bible says, your first question should be, where? Let's look at it together. And if their response to you is, well, I don't know where, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere... It's in the New or the Old Testament, I think. You know, if they, if they say something like that, duck, <laughs> there's a nail coming. <laughs> you know, that, that is not appropriate. Someone came up to my friend, uh, a different friend on one of those Christian uh, summer camps that we were on, and uh, my friend was smoking uh, cigarettes. And uh, this stranger came up to him and said, look, man, the Bible says you shouldn't be doing that. Well, it doesn't, actually. It doesn't actually say that. It talks about, you know, not drinking too much. It talks about not eating too much, not sleeping too much, not working too much. One can, of course, infer from all of those things that that one should not smoke too much, but you will never find a verse that says, thou shalt not smoke in weird medieval for some reason. That's because they didn't have tobacco. 
So it, it doesn't say that. One can intuit from the word how to behave. The Bible does talk about our bodies being a temple. It talks about uh, them being repositories of the Holy Spirit. It talks about the sanctity of all human life because all human life is made in the image of God. And it talks about looking after our bodies because they're to be used for the glory of God and to be deployed for the advance of the kingdom. You can come up with all sorts of Christian ideas about smoking from those ideas and from those contexts. But it doesn't say, do not smoke. And it doesn't say that the best way to address the subject with someone is to walk up to a complete stranger, an impressionable youth, and smash them in the face with the Bible and tell them that it says something it doesn't really say. Get into the Word. In the context, maybe, of friends who are in the Word. Those who are washed with the Word of grace and can help you navigate life by the Word. Let me give you a little pastor's trick, a little, uh, you know, giving away the secrets like the magic circle. Um, if you want to know if it's really in there, someone says it's in there somewhere, get out a smartphone, go to Google, type in the word Bible, and then anything you like, and it will come up with all of the passages if they're really in there. Um, that is basically how we make every single sermon series that we do in the church. <laughs> It's not that sophisticated, but it's really, really usable. I can't help feeling, you know, all these points of Christian controversy, these arguments that people have about what we should do and should we do this or should we do that, they would be more graciously resolved if those having the arguments were doing so and having their arguments governed by the word. If the word were open between them, I can't help feeling that they would find themselves on the same page. Even the most influential people in the world must be governed by the word. When a British monarch is crowned, the moderator of the Church of Scotland, remember it's a United Kingdom, and so the Presbyterian moderator of Scotland, along with the Archbishop of Canterbury from England, they come together and the Archbishop says, we present you with this book the most valuable thing that this world affords. Can you imagine saying that to a king or a queen? That this is the most valuable thing. They've got castles and, and crowns and jewels and armies. And, and, you know, we even have an empire, if you count Guernsey. You know, <laughs> not much of an empire anymore. But you know what? They, they, they own a lot of stuff. And the moderator and the archbishop say that this is the most precious thing that the world affords. My friend Joby, Joby McGinty, is a wonderful minister. He's a preacher of the word of God. He also happens to be a militant Irishman. And uh, for historical reasons, he's not at all fond of the British or their queen. So each year on St. Patrick's Day, I like to send him something authentically, you know, Irish such as a British flag, picture of the Queen, bowler hat, an orange, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, one year, I sent him one of these, a commemorative Bible from the Queen's Jubilee. It has a, 
Union flag on the front and a nice crown and lots of pictures in the first ten pages of Her Britannic Majesty the Queen. I thought he'd really appreciate this. Pictures of her with the children as the coronation. Little map of parts of the world we still own. It's very small. <laughs> you know, I thought he might quite like this. Uh, Joby said to me that, you know, he'd, he'd never felt such conflict in all of his life. Because usually he doesn't even open the parcel when he sees my address on it. He just throws it straight in the trash because he knows what's inside of it. But he opened this one up and he said he didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to put it. You know, everything he said in his heart said, chuck it in the trash. And yet, you know, everything in his training and in his soul said that, that he couldn't do that because this is sacred. This is, this is different. That's why I gave it to him. I thought it was kind of funny. What is so sacred about this, this book? The rubric of the coronation service states, and the moderator shall continue, here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. It is alive, is what they say. Look at verse 16. All the, all the uh, 316s in the Bible are awesome, and they're memory verses. 2 Timothy 316 is no exception. All scripture is breathed out by God. Not the book, not the printed material, not the cover, not the font, not the point size, and the text, and the ink, and the binding, and the paper. None of that. That would be so superficial, to venerate something so superficial would be bibolatry, that is the idolatry of the Bible. It would be something inappropriate to do. We're talking about the scripture itself, the graphe, the writings, all of it, old and new, all of these scriptures are breathed out by God. The word there in Greek is theonoustos, theo, God, God, and Nusnos, pnustos, uh, air, breathing, breath, spirit. Uh, all of Scripture is breathed out by God Himself. It's, it's written by people. It's imbued with the quirks of their own written style and human hands. But every single word in every way is divinely spirited onto the page, such that what we have in our hands right now is perfectly and without fault the word of the Lord as he willed that we would have it. How could we ignore such a thing? How could we denigrate such a thing? How could we let such a thing gather dust? The mainline churches in the United States of America are systematically neglecting the word of God. They've got bored of the word. They don't know what it says. They don't know what to do with it. They don't care about it anymore. They're drifting from the word of God and turning to Facebook instead for their theology and their doctrine. Why? All scripture is breathed out by God. This is what he wanted you to have. And it is profitable for teaching. That's a word to do with learning and doctrine. For reproof, it's a word to do with evidence. It's evidentially probative. For correction, that's like you know being in a state correctional facility. It makes you straighten up or straighten out. 
The word is clear, the word is methodical, the word is strict, the word is evidential. The word gives you a clear and straight path through all the disparate turning points in life. And yet, with such didactic and strict imagery, Paul says it is also for training. It's a soft word for tutelage, for nurture. It's, it's the word child. The word is child. It's a weird thing to say. It's, it's for childing. It's for, for nurturing us like spiritual children. It's soft. It's tender. It's careful. John Calvin, in his theory of accommodation, said that by the word, God lisps to us as nurses are wont to do with little children, like baby talk. You know when you speak to a baby and you use little words and silly phrases and and that, that sort of cutesy, simplistic way of speaking. That's what the Bible is like. It's it's God's simplest words. At the same time as being the tenderest and simplest of things he might say to us, like a dad to a baby, it is at the same time the absolute limit of everything we can grasp. It stretches us to the limit. It's all graspable, but it's hard. It's difficult. It's, it's, we, we could spend a lifetime plumbing its depths. And though it is the simplest, tenderest thing he could speak to us, it is yet the most complicated and, and inspiring thing we might ever read. Every single word tailored for our good. I keep in a safe at home a letter from my grandmother, a little card that she sent me with some pocket money and uh, each month and a little picture of an Exmoor pony on the front of the card and some writing. And um, It's the last card that she ever wrote to me when I was five, just before she died. And I keep it in my safe, but why? Why do I treasure that? We, we have far more important documents in the house, like my green card. That's more important to me. You know, we've got you know, titles to the car. We've got photographs of our children and flash drives with key documents on them. Why, why of all the things that I could keep, and, you know, we have many precious things, jewelry and so on, why of all of the things that could be in the safe do I have a card from my gran that is so meaningless and scruffy? Well, because of the author. That's why it's precious to me. The Bible is, on the one hand, the most foundational and directive of tools that a workman might use, like a nail gun, a blunt instrument that we can use to find God's ways. And yet, at the same time, it is the most majestic and poetic and prophetic and personal letter of love that you will ever read in your whole life. And that is only half the story. Let's turn very briefly to Hebrews chapter 4. It's only a few pages away. Just forward to Hebrews 4. We go through Philemon and then we're at Hebrews. There's a couple of other bits and pieces in between, but not many. And there's debate. When you find it, there's debate over what Hebrews is talking about when it uses the word, word. Uh, it's, it's not quite clear. It's certainly some manifestation of God speaking, whatever that might mean. And the word, the things which God speaks or reveals, it says in verse 12, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active. Why is this letter alive? Well, because he is the author. 
is alive. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. My previous church, someone said to me, I can't wait until you come and preach tonight and you come and you unpick the word for us. Tracy did the face that I was feeling last night. Where are you? There you are. You know, just like, I can't wait till you unpick the word. I nearly threw up on the floor in the chancel. Just like, oh, what a thing to say. You know, can't wait till you just pull it to pieces. Can't wait for you to tease out every little word, unpick it, pull it apart. You know, tell us the funny little bits that it says and why. I thought of this verse from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And, and that phrase made me shudder. It, 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 it terrified me. I don't want to unpick the word. I want the word to unpick me. I want it to unravel me. I want it to, to, to go to work on me. I want the word like a, a sharp double-edged sword. I imagine a scalpel here, like a surgeon's you know, implement, a, a, you know, one of those laser eczemas. Just a, I imagine a, a, a sharp and precise instrument going to work on me, unpicking me, cutting away all of those hunks of dead flesh that there are in my heart, taking away that which is necrotic and joining together that which is alive and, and must grow. I want the word to transplant in me a new heart and grow in me something that is more lively than that which was there before I opened it. Saints, we must never, ever dare to climb into the preacher's pulpit, literal or metaphorical, Wherever you go, and you decide that you want to tell someone what the Bible says, boom, we must never dare climb into our preacher's pulpits unless and until first we have lain down on the surgeon's table. We must let the word go to work on us before we dare to think that we can make it work on other people. Now we go through phases. I know we go through phases, because I go through phases. We all go through phases of, of being closer to God and further away. We go through these moments of like, yeah, and like just loving it and being on fire. And we go through phases of getting busy and, and putting it away. I know we do. We all do. Preparing this sermon this week, I just felt utterly overwhelmed by the inadequacy of my own study of the word. And I study it. I love it. I read it, but it just felt not enough. I, I, I think that that will be a universal feeling if the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart right now because I don't know that there ever is such a thing as enough. So if you haven't got the feeling, there's something really wrong going on in your heart right now. Perhaps we all feel that way, I, I really hope. But I, I have definitely found that the times when I'm more deeply into it are, are, are more fun, the better. And when cats more deeply into it, I get the, the fears. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be left behind. You know, when I'm really deeply into it, we're running in and out of the kitchen, sharing things that we've seen in the Word with each other and, and getting excited about it. And we've found that, that in those times, just things start to kind of go more well in our lives. And now, through the ministry of, of Mrs. Fire and, and Mr. Josh, our kids are in the Word more than they were before. And, and now they're holding us to account. We're at the dinner table, and I say some knucklehead thing, and my kids start suddenly saying, well, I don't know about that, Dad. <laughs> That's not what it says in the Word. I go, 
And they go, because in Colossians chapter 3 it says, I'm like, oh boy, like, you know, just convicted by the, the spiritual authority of my own children because they've been brought up in the training and the instruction of the Lord and they love the word and they know what it says and they don't make it up and they don't find nail guns at random. They care for my soul. And they're nine and ten. This is what the word is like. And we found in our family life that those times when we're in the word, they work. And our lives can be falling to bits. We can be stressed out beyond all belief. We can be struggling in all sorts of areas, in all sorts of ways. And when we're in the Word, it seems okay. And by that same rationale, we can find that sometimes when life is going swimmingly and the bank balance is okay and the workload is okay, but we're not really in the Word, it just feels wrong. The Word of God is the first and foremost thing, the commanding scriptures, are the first place to turn when we don't know where to turn. No matter where we are, whatever decision you've got coming up this week, if it's a huge one about your marriage or your home or your work, if it's a tiny one about going for a run and not eating that cake, get into the word. Wash yourself in the word. From the biggest decision, the biggest turning point in your life to the most inconsequential of them all. The only way to know God's heart for you and the direction for your life and to find his ways is to be in the word. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your lively word. We do confess. It must be true that we have not read it enough. Let us not hear a voice of condemnation, but open its pages and find grace. Let us find how this grace thing works by immersing ourselves in your lively word. And as we do so, God, would you go to work in us? And if any of us here are feeling ashamed, like I am, about my own walk with you in the word and about my own parenting and teaching of the kids in the word because it's never enough, Let us uh, be a church that that is filled with grace. Let our kids and our parents and our families and our husbands and wives see a change in us because we're in the word. And would they be fascinated by your word and come to love it too. Wash through our homes the power of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together, church, and affirm our faith, please, in the words of the creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God.
and the life of the world to come. Amen. Do please be seated to pray. And I wondered earlier at the 8 o'clock, I wonder again, if, if someone has something very special on their heart that they wish to pray for out loud, you can catch my eye as we bow our heads and just come forward and pray those prayers into the microphone from your heart, if, if that's you. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray for the church and her mission to share the word with the world that is lost. We pray for the denominations, particularly the, the mainline denominations in this United States, and ask that they would have a renewed uh, repentant love for your word. Heavenly Father, we pray for our own church, for uh, the team here, the vestry and the staff team, and we pray for our bishop, Jim. We pray for uh, those who will be joining the staff team. We pray for the interview process for a new curate, and we pray for, for all of those candidates, and especially the one that you are choosing to come and minister here. We pray as well for those amongst us who are struggling or, or suffering in any way, those who are sick or lonely or bereaved or troubled in some way. God, would you please comfort them in their trouble? And if uh, we have permission to name someone aloud, we think that they would like to be prayed for out loud, let's name them now in this room. with several dear brothers and sisters facing uh, medical trial and sickness and disease in this season. We pray especially, Lord God, for your healing hand over them in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>